Well, the title of the message is One of Jesus' Most Important Teaching, with a little subtitle, Why the Context of Passover is Essential to Communion. Look, if we brought all of San Marcos in to this facility this morning, and we asked them, what figure in human history has most captured man's imagination? I am convinced that the number one answer would be Jesus of Nazareth. More books have been written about him than any other man in human history. More songs have been composed to sing of his beauty and his wonder and his splendor and his strength. Hey, what year do we find ourselves at this time? Well, it's 2000, can someone tell me? 18. Why? Well, because 2000. And 18 years ago, Jesus was born. So every time we pin a letter or we identify a date, we indirectly recognize the birth of the Lord Jesus. The reality is Jesus was and still is the most powerful person in world history. The question is, who is he? So in other words, was Jesus a mere man with great charisma? Was he an extraordinary teacher, or was he the son of God, the God-man? The great author and Oxford philosopher C.S. Lewis offered this perspective. He said, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense that he was a great moral teacher. He did not leave that option open to us. Why did Lewis say that? Here's why. The essence of Jesus' teachings, and he was a communicator, and he still is, in essence identified who he is. In other words, Jesus didn't come to just illuminate the mind with ethical standards or a sense of morality or some general philosophy of life. His teachings had to do with who he is. I mean, look, he said to a prominent teacher, a rabbi in Jerusalem, he said to him, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He said to two sisters who were grieving, they had just lost their brother in death. He said, I am the resurrection in life. And if you believe in me, though you die, you shall live. He didn't say, Mary and Martha, let me just give you some perspective. I'm so sorry for the death. And I just want to, I want to give you some perspective of how through death can come life. He, he was so personal. I am the resurrection of life. Whoa. He said to Thomas, who was wondering, Lord, what, what is the way? I mean, we believe you're the Messiah, and you're talking about going away. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except to be through me. The point is, is that Jesus' teachings, what make them unique, is not because he's proposing some morality or ethical standards, some system of belief. He's actually underscoring who he is. Are you with me on that? And if we were to ask, well, what are the most important teachings that Jesus gave? Could we rank them? You know, is it John 3.16 or John 11 or so John 14.6? I mean, it would be irresponsible to even try. But what we just read here 
how Jesus broke bread. He said, this is symbolic of my broken body. Do this in remembrance of me. And when he took the cup, the new covenant in his blood, this teaching is like monster, major, sacred ground. This belongs way at the top, if not at the very top. It identifies one of the sacraments in the church, which is a big term. I didn't grow up hearing this term. But a sacrament is that which identifies who Jesus is and his work in a concise manner and is to be passed on and practiced and identified all throughout church history. It comes with divine authority. Jesus said he wants us to do it. And when we embrace it, we're not only embracing the truth of who he is, but now who we are in relationship to him. And that's big, really big. Therefore, a sacrament like communion, which we're going to participate, the bread and the cup, and what it means is actually identifying not only who Jesus is and his work, but as we participate, identifying who we are actually, what our true identity is. Like if I were to ask you, like who are you? How would you answer that? What are the realities that define your life? The sum of your choices, your ethnicity, your DNA, what school you went to? And some of you, I wouldn't be surprised. It's like, man, who are you? And I mean, it could be a temptation to like, to trigger some ants, A-N-T-S, you know, autom- automatic negative thoughts. And you're thinking, I am just a, well, fill in the blank, but it's not the most positive thing. It's very important that we know who we are, actually. And we don't find the answer to that from ourselves. We find it from the one who actually created us. When Jesus spoke of the bread and the cup, whoa, it is off the charts. We got to really get it because it's not only identifying his identity, but who we are in him. It's an identity issue. And identity is important. Look, I heard a story about a guy who was struggling with identity, he went to the psychiatrist and he said, I got to get this off my chest. Doc, he said, look, every time I go to the store, he said, I'm just drawn to like where the dog food is. And he says, well, it's no big deal. I mean, lots of people are, you know, I mean, I mean, do you have a dog? No, I don't have a dog. Well, I need to explain. I mean, it's like, I, it's not only am I drawn to like the aisle where the dog food is. I, I love purchasing dog food. He said, well, that's Okay. Uh, no, I need to tell you, I love eating dog food. And the, the, the psychiatrist is like, oh man, uh, okay, well like, um, uh, you know, could you tell me a little bit more uh, about that and how long you've been doing that? And he said, you know, ever since I was a puppy, I, I've been doing that, you know. It's like, okay, well, you, you have an identity issue, right? And, and it's like, here's the thing, it's like he's eating dog food. It's a terrible story. I feel sorry for it. I'm sure it's happened in history. But anyways, but it's like, it's like, you know, we are kind of, you know, what we eat. And it's like, what are you internalizing? What are the ideas that you are internalizing in your life? Is some fear, is some crazy decision you made in your past that still is haunting you? I mean, what Jesus said here not only reveals who he is, but who we are in him. And yet I am convinced the meaning of it is often minimized from its full weight that Jesus intended. Think, I want you to think of a diamond real quick. I mean, we have a dear friend, family friend, that has the largest diamond I have ever seen in my life, and it's on her ring finger. And when I first met her many years ago, like 30 years ago, as a, as a young man, 
uh, I would look at this, and it was hard not to, and I, it was so big, I was just the biggest thing I've ever seen. And I was a little embarrassed. I'd meet her, and then I'd just, whoa, what is that thing on your finger? It was, and it is a big diamond, just think golf ball kind of, it's huge. The thing is, imagine if you took that diamond off of her finger so beautifully displayed, and you threw it in a pack of rocks. You ask the question, well, is that diamond, I'm telling you, the diamond's like a six-figure value, believe me, it's so big. Anyways, you threw it in the pack of rocks. Does it still retain its value? Yes, in the pack of rocks. Is it, is, is it still beautiful? Yes. Does it still carry its weight? Yes. But you're unable to see its beauty because it's not properly displayed. On the finger as it should. When Jesus, listen, communicated what he did here in verse 19 and verse 20, when he said, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant of my blood which is shed for you. Please hear this. It's like this extraordinary diamond. The beauty, the awesomeness, the weight of it is off the charts. But the reality is, if we're going to really see it for what it is, we need to see it in the context in which Jesus communicated it. I have a friend in Los Angeles. He's a best-selling author. And he said, if we wish to really fathom what Jesus is talking about, we have to try to enter the minds of his listeners. Every speaker, no matter how universal, addresses a particular community. If we wish to understand Pericles, we must put ourselves in the minds of the ancient Athenians. If we wish to grasp the oratory of Cicero, we must become members of the Roman Senate. And if we wish to hear Jesus, we must become ancient Jews. We first read, this is my body broken for you. This is the covenant new covenant of my blood. And I know that's important. It has to do with Christianity. and We've all participated. And if we were to conclude, oh, it's, it's a celebration that, that Jesus paid for the debt of my sin, and that I'm forgiven, and I hope beyond the grave. That's true. But that, that is not the full beauty of what he's communicating. And what I want you to understand, I want our church family to understand, and this is I felt so impressed. I want us to get in this in the culture of our church as early as possible. And so that's one of the reasons we're doing this. I want you to understand that the meaning of what Jesus said, this beautiful diamond that he identified has actually eroded in its meaning throughout church history because it has not been communicated in the context in which Jesus communicated. And that's what we want to do this morning. We really want to experience the full beauty of what he communicated. Are you with me on that idea, right? What I want you to understand, our church family, is there was a terrible turn in the history of, of the church. And I use that really generally because some of these individuals making the choices and decisions, I'm not so sure they really knew the Lord, only the Lord knows. But there was a turning point in history that set the church and set theology and set a thinking in a direction never intended by the Lord. It took place when the Roman Emperor Constantine, who made Christianity the state-supported religion of the Roman Empire, in 325 CE, called the first general council of the church leaders throughout the empire to a place called Nicaea. And this was the origins of the Church of Rome, of what would become the Catholic Church. 
But when he did this, he refused to invite any Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus. Our brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, he did not invite any bishop, any chief prominent pastor who was a Jew. And at the same council, it was decided to outlaw the celebration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the context in which it took place on the biblical calendar of Nisan 14, the historical day of the great exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt. The very day that Jesus would give his life on the cross. So what Constantine did, and those boys back then, is something terrible. Okay, and I want us to try to capture the idea really quickly. So look up here. Thank you, Lord. let's, Let's rock this. Number one, what this did is it resulted in the church no longer celebrating the crucifixion and resurrection in the historical context in which they actually took place, which blurred the beautiful unfolding plan of God as revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures. I want to capture this real quick. Number two, okay? Are you following me? I know I'm going quick, but I just want to get, I just want to, I just want you to get it. I want you to get the big picture. Watch this. What Paul feared, written in Romans 9 through 11, sadly came to pass. Gentile believers moved away from acknowledging the fact that the new covenant was given to Israel, fulfilled in Messiah, and then offered to them. In other words, non-Jews, us predominantly, were grafted in to this glorious plan that God had given Israel, fulfilled in Messiah. So our roots are in the Hebrew Scriptures. Our roots are in the promises God gave to Israel, fulfilled in Messiah. Number three, watch this. By the fourth century, the church had become so detached from its Jewish roots that it had turned the apostle Peter into the first pope and began to celebrate Jesus' resurrection on a completely different day, Easter based on a solar calendar, rather than celebrating his death, resurrection, during the Passover week, lunar calendar, as the first believers had done. Number four, we're almost done. I got 20 of these. I'm just kidding. Okay, number four, Constantine's decision in 325 AD, uprooted the Jewish framework of Christianity and in its place planted seeds with bad DNA that tragically began to grow into ignorance, hatred, anti-Semitism, even morphing into deadly consequences seen in the Holocaust. Sounds like a broad brush. It is a statement, but that's true. We don't have time to develop it. Number five, this is the last one. In the midst of all of this, Man, our precious Lord's passion, purpose, and divine plan for man became heartbreakingly minimized, even obscured over the centuries. It's like, man, that's the intro, by the way, of the message. But that is very important to understand. So what we want to do to ensure that this diamond that we read about that Jesus is so passionate about, his teaching that belongs way at the top that he put his whole heart into, and then after he said these things, he gave his life for. We just want to honor the context in which he communicated it so we can best honor him, know who he is, feel his passion, be changed by the truth, of what he accomplished for us.
Can I hear a big amen to that? Okay, so here we go. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22. You're already there. Let's study context. In verse 7, beginning here in verse 7, before we read it, I just want you to look out for a term, for a word, day. Because it simply says in verse 7, then came the day, the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. We're talking about a specific day here. Unleavened bread and Passover are often used interchangeably. We'll explain that another time. But just to underscore doubly, it's Passover. It's a specific day on the Hebraic calendar. Sounds weird to us. It's Nisan 14. It falls on our calendar March, April. But this day, okay, that Jesus communicates these things, historically, to the children of Israel was the day of their great exodus out of Egypt. One of the biggest, if not the biggest, social, economic, political turning points in the history of man. And the Lord called Israel on a yearly basis to always remember this day in history. It's like we have our July 4th, but it's nothing, with all due respect, nothing in comparison to Nisan 14 Passover. When over a million people were released from slavery out of Egypt and then made a transition ultimately into the promised land. It's called Passover Because the Lord passed over homes covered in lamb's blood and brought judgment on homes not rightly prepared. And it was the day the Lord commanded Israel never to forget on a yearly basis, not only because they would remember, and I'm with you. And I heard your cries as he hears our cries as well. And I I moved on on Moses' life and heart to get down there and to spearhead a great movement and But ultimately, it was my active presence in your midst that freed you from that enslavement. He always wanted them to remember that day that he loved them, that he delivered them. But he also wanted them to remember it because it was a prophecy. It was a day in history, yes, but it was a prophecy of a greater deliverance that would take place 1,300 years later on the very same day. The very day that Jesus was lifted up on the cross, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Colossians 2.17 says, it was a shadow of a reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. And from the Lord's perspective, no wonder Passover is one of the three holy days the Lord required all male Jews to present themselves to him. So the point is, here's context. Like when Jesus said, you guys, we'll talk further about it, but this is breaks bread. He's having a meal. I'll get to it in a second. But, you know, when he said these things and the cup and so forth, I mean, you have hundreds of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem, clearly over a million. Josephus, the great Roman historian, said there were 256,000 lambs that were slain. You could slain a lamb on Passover to represent 10 people, so you can figure it out. You got over a million people in Jerusalem at this time. You have the Roman governor Pilate who's made his way from his villa in Caesarea. You go to Israel, we're going to see it. 
little plug for Israel. That's really inappropriate right now. But anyways, it's like he comes up 50 miles to Jerusalem. Man, there's major security in the, in the city. Why? Because you have over a million Jews in this very city. They're remembering how they were released from enslavement and injustice in Egypt. And now they're thinking potentially, hey, man, we're in our land, but we are under the thumb of the redcoats, the Roman Romans themselves, and we don't like it. And if there's going to be any potential insurrection, it's going to probably take place at one of the major holy days, maybe Passover. In fact, someone has been arrested already. His name is Barabbas. He's an insurrectionist. I don't know his full story, but he's probably stabbed or killed or whatever, a Roman soldier. So, I mean, this is a tenuous time, and that's why you have full representation of the Roman Empire there. Let's continue, you guys, in verse 8. And I want you to notice two things. One is that he addresses a specific meal, and I want you to notice that Jesus is micromanaging this event. It says in verse 8, he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may, can someone tell me? Eat, okay? General reference to not only offering a lamb in the Temple Mount, but also the meal following. Verse 9, so they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into this house where he enters. And then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished Upper room, there make ready. So they went and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. There's a lot being said there, but please look at verse 14 again. Look at the phrase, the hour had come. There's emphasis being made here. It speaks of a specific purpose that is unfolding, a divine drama that is unfolding. In the most immediate context, Jesus has micromanaged two events so far. Listen carefully. Four days earlier, on Nisan 10, I know it's kind of a weird term, biblical calendar, well, that's the day biblically that the Passover lamb was identified four days later would be slain. Kind of speaks of a life for life or a life for redemption. I mean, just the cost to cover and cleanse sin. Speaking of, man, it's no small thing. Sin has major consequence breaking relation with God, but also has major consequence on a horizontal level with our fellow men. And Jesus had micromanaged an event that he would be on a donkey coming into the city of Jerusalem on that very day. He is riding a donkey. Donkeys bear burdens. That donkey that day is bearing the burden of the one who's carrying the burden of the sin of the world. The idea that, man, I just want to take death and just, you know, break down and racism and just, just all the breakdown and sin and shame. I'm going to take it upon myself. And I'm going to create a new man in me in a new way in me in right relationship. And I'm going to demonstrate it through my resurrection. I mean, just, you have this divine drama that's unfolding. And Jesus had, had micromanaged that that would take place. And now he's micromanaged 
that the boys, that Peter and John would have a place to set up a meal, a Passover Seder. And this meal, it's kind of like our Thanksgiving in a way. When we eat Thanksgiving, we remember a historical event of a new beginning here in our country. But in this case, this meal is actually a reenactment. reenactment. It's a reenaction. Is that the right word? Reenactment, thank you very much. A reenaction. Go look that up. I don't think you'll ever find it. Anyways, a reenactment of this historical event. So you've got bitter herbs and you have wine and you have unleavened bread. And so it's this meal and it's, it's just like it's filling your senses. You're internalizing and you're telling the story and just remembering how God loves us, how he redeemed us. But it was also a rehearsal of something to come, a greater exodus that would impact the entire world. A greater exodus from the enslavement and sin that the Messiah would bring to the entire world. Can I hear a big amen to that? And look at verse 15. This is just off the charts. And then he said, and this is such sacred ground to our precious Lord with fervent desire. I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Please go back to verse 15. Look at that phrase, with fervent desire. It speaks of intense passion. Now let's try to get into the soul of our precious Lord and Savior. He is feeling it deeply. I mean, look, look, there's all kinds of reasons why we get passionate. I actually like passionate people. In, In order for there to be passion... There's always these three components. Your, your body has to be there. Your mind has to be in tune with whatever's going on. And you've got to feel it. There's emotional aspects. I, look, when I was a young guy, a young preacher, like, I don't know, 26 years old, just a few years ago. Anyways, all right. I'm like in Austria doing a conference. And I am teaching a bunch of Italians. And I show up for a session. And I walk down the middle aisle, and one of them kind of pulls on my shirt and says, Pastor, make sure you finish your message at 11.55 a.m. And I'm thinking, okay. So I keep walking further. Someone else bumps me. I'm telling the truth. It's just, uh, just you got to make sure you finish at 11.55 a.m. I'm thinking to myself, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that precedes them. What are you guys so in a rush? It's like, okay, another one, I'm walking down. Someone else says, hey, just, you know, just got to make sure you're in on time. Why? Because the pasta was being poured at 11.58. I'm just telling you. I'm like, well, okay. And then when we went in the dining room, I experienced something. I just totally loved it. They brought the pasta out. They stood. It was like a soccer match. They're like, oh, they're singing. They're doing all of this stuff. I am not kidding. I love the passion. I'm like, I love this. And then the interesting thing, the pasta had no sauce on it. It's just like, it's just, it just had a bunch of olive oil all over that they poured on the pasta. But because they were so passionate, I was thinking, give me some of that stuff, you know. It's like, I was just like, that's passion. Okay, now, on a much more serious note, the thing that we have to understand here is when Jesus said he's with fervent desire, desire to eat this Passover with you, he's fully present. He's so in the moment. 
A moment in time and space has arrived that was decided from eternity past. And it has arrived, and he knows it. And the disciples, they're not caught up with this emotionally. They're, they're there, you know, respectfully to these guys. Uh, they're, they're warm bodies in the room, but they have no idea really what's happening. Their minds are going to catch up eventually, and the Lord understands that, as our minds need to catch up Two, with the reality what's taking place. Look at verse 17. Then he took the cup, gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among yourself. So now he is amidst a part of the, of the Passover Seder. What exact part, we don't know. But it is a meal, a reenactment of a historical event. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Which tells us that the last supper Jesus had with the disciples was a Passover Seder. I mean, to even reference like, um, yeah, you know, the Last Supper without the context that it was a Jewish Passover Seder, I think is taking out, us out of the context. And that has consequences to it, actually. It's important. This is a Passover Seder. Now look at verse 19, and he took bread. And he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you, or given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread Jesus is holding here is in the context of telling the story of the Exodus. It's no ordinary bread. It's unleavened bread. It had to be striped. It's a part of the story of the Exodus. And when holding it, what you are remembering is the sobering cost of the price of freedom, new beginning, lamb's blood, covering the doorposts of the homes in Egypt, an expedient departure, not enough time for the bread to rise, all of those things. So it's not just any bread. It's not a donut, not to be silly. It's not a donut. It's not, it's, it's not potato bread. It's, it's not pita. It's, it's unleavened bread. It's striped. It actually has holes in it. We're going to hold some of uh, that type of bread in just a little bit. And for Jesus, therefore, then to say, well, okay, now look, okay, I mean, for like hundreds of years, our people have been breaking this bread, remembering a historical event. It's so important to understand. Okay, now I want you to break it. And I want you to remember me. Now that is off the charts and I'm sure to the disciples, they're thinking, whoa. You know, in Jerusalem, there is, a, there is a memorial called Yad Vashem. It's the Holocaust memorial. And when you walk into it, your senses are overcome by the cost and consequence of what evil produces. If wrong ideas, devaluing ideas towards your fellow man informs your thinking, the consequences are really bad. It deforms and deteriorates and desensitizes. When you walk into this memorial, this kind of museum, it's a terrible experience. You see... The consequence, I'm going to say it, of, of demonic, devaluing ideas of fellow human beings that no word is adequate. 
And it's like, who really wants to go to the museum? Who really wants to go to the memorial? Because once you do, it ruins you. You walk away, just, that was so bad. That's disturbing. It's like a bad dream. Who likes bad, bad dreams? But it's not a dream. It happened. And it's a museum of how evil ideas destroy. But it exists, this memorial, for two reasons. It exists to say never again. And it exists to honor and respect and value the precious lives that were lost, trampled by evil. When we hold the bread and the cup, symbolic of the Lord's body and blood, it's a totally different memorial. It recalls the cost love paid to make all things new. So on one hand, when you walk into it, and the Lord says he wants us to remember him, and we're thinking, goodness gracious, Lord, you were whipped 39 times with a cat of nine tails. You were beaten. You were plummeted. On the cross, you were treated as if you committed every stinking sin in human history. On one hand, it's like this is a horrible experience to experience, but what it is telling us is actually not the cost of evil and its consequences, but the cost love paid to make things new. And one day, everything will be new on planet Earth. When Jesus returns, he integrates heaven to earth, And the Bible says even, we talked about this recently, all of creation is groaning for a wholeness of shalom when the Prince of Peace, our Lord Jesus, returns and establishes his kingdom. Listen to what the prophecy said in Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace, our shalom, our wholeness, our righteousness was upon him. And by his stripes we are, can someone tell me? Healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Jesus will inaugurate with his blood on the cross will not merely bring forgiveness of sins, but will bring one day everything new when he establishes righteousness and justice when he returns, i.e. everlasting life. It's going to happen and we're going to be a part of it. And he's telling these men, you guys, this is the last, this is the last Passover Seder I'm going to have with you. But we're actually, according to Ezekiel, we're going to celebrate in the kingdom. We're going to celebrate the meaning of the of the great price that was paid to make things new. And I'm going to drink the cup of redemption one day with you. But it's going to be in the kingdom. Before that, I'm going to inaugurate this new covenant. It's like big term. What does it mean? A covenant simply is a divine plan and a divine promise. And when Jesus gave his life on the cross, it's like he lit this. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He lit this bomb of blessing and wholeness that exploded that brings not only forgiveness, but regeneration and wholeness in himself. Can I hear a big amen to that? All right, look at verse 20. We're almost done. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, 
This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And it's believed at this point Jesus is holding in the Passover Seder the cup of redemption, symbolic of the Passover lambs in Egypt. But now is identifying himself as the ultimate Lamb of God, sacrificed for our redemption and forgiveness of sins, exploding this new covenant. Look up here for a second. What Jesus is saying is, what I'm going to accomplish on the cross, I am going to link the great plan of the Heavenly Father from eternity past into eternity future. And I'm the key here. I'm going to link it. And it's because of what I'm going to accomplish at the death, burial, and resurrection that is going to assure that it takes place. It's happening. And every all enemies of racism and shame and guilt and hatred and all these crazy things and ignorance will be under his feet that is taking place through the work of the gospel and through his church and one day when he's on here on planet earth in his reign. And after this meal, Jesus and the disciples exit. They go to Gethsemane where Jesus was arrested. So I mean, this meal maybe is taking place, I don't know for sure, maybe at seven o'clock at night. And they've had the meal, he's been there for a while and maybe they're at Gethsemane, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night. Gethsemane means oil press. Jesus is in a garden. Judas is leading a band of soldiers. They arrest him, take him most likely down the Kidron Valley, take him to Caiaphas, Pilate, Caiaphas, Pilate. Pilate has him sentenced to be crucified. The next morning, he's on the cross the same day, Nisan 14, Passover. The exact same day as the great Exodus, 1,300 years later, was a foreshadowing of the new beginning that the Messiah would accomplish that would impact the entire world. And hence, how important it is that when we receive the cup and the bread this morning, and Sarah, you can come up at this time, and Lily, thank you so much, that we remember the context. Can I hear a big amen to that? So here's what we're going to do. We're not done yet, but I'm really happy because I just finished in 39 minutes. But what we're going to do is I'm going to ask the men to distribute first the bread. Thanks, guys. And Sarah thinks she's going to sing a little bit. I want you to hold the bread. Hold the bread, and we're going to partake together a little bit, okay? Because I want to say a few more things in terms of now what this means to us afresh today. And before the guys come out, I want to pray real quick. Just would you bow your heads with me? Father, Father, we, we want to pray if there's anyone here that has yet to open their heart. As you said, Jesus, you stand at the door of our hearts, and if anyone would hear your voice and open the door, you will come in. Lord, you made us to know you. You made us to have relationship with you. And the missing piece is you. And Lord, you said, if anyone is thirsty, let them come into me and drink. And if that takes place, out of their heart shall flow living waters. Speaking of so many things, but for one, Lord, 
speaking of the fact that you made us at the core to know you and without knowing you in intimacy, Father, in your Son, a big hole is missing. And I just want to pray, Lord, if there is anyone here that is, that is yet to open their heart to you and receive you as Savior and Lord, that, Lord, in these next few moments, they would do just that. And that this, this communion that they would be participating in would be a demonstration of receiving you, receiving your love, receiving your forgiveness, receiving the truth of who you are, how you hung, bled, gave your life on the cross, three days later resurrected. You're the Son of God, God the Son. You're coming again. You're making all things new. And you love them so much, you love them enough not to leave them the way they are. May that explode in their hearts. And if you're here and you're thinking, man, that's me, and I actually would like to receive Christ. Listen, let me just say a few things. Number one, just recognize what he's done for you. We've been talking about it. Number two, Jesus said, unless a person repents, they'll perish. They'll just continue to break down. Repentance is a word in the Greek that means to change the way you think. The most important area to change the way you think is, is man, embrace Jesus Christ. You know what's interesting is you do so, he actually enlarges your heart for love for your fellow man. There's a peace plan that the father has. It's right relationship with him and his son and right relationship with fellow man, empowered by the love of Jesus Christ. Join it, get, step into it. Number three, receive him. He really is just a prayer away. And you can do that by participating and saying, Lord, come into my life, be my Lord, be my Savior, be my God. You can, what could be better than just to jump in right here with communion? And I would encourage you to do so. And I would encourage you, don't wait. If you're thinking, man, that's me. I just believe the Lord is speaking and step into it. So, Lord, I pray for anyone here that, is in that place of decision. Now help them make that right decision for you as we receive communion. In Jesus' name, amen.